This episode is brought to you by Bad Education on HBO. Inspired by true events, Bad Education follows Frank Tassone and Pam Glucken, who reign over a popular Long Island school district on the verge of the nation's top spot until an embezzlement scheme surfaces. Deemed by IndieWire as a diabolically smart American crime story, Bad Education is Emmy-eligible for Outstanding Television Movie and all other categories. Who says period dramas have to be stuffy? Along with Hulu's absurdist historical drama The Great this season, there's also Apple TV's Dickinson, which tells the funny and riveting story about Massachusetts 19th century teenage dance poet Emily Dickinson, her strict father who tried to curb her writing, the boys in her life, and the future sister-in-law she dearly loved. Emily Dickinson is sublimely portrayed by Oscar nominee Haley Steinfeld. We're here today on Crew Call with the series creator, Elena Smith, and composers Drum and Lace and Ian, who created a deconstructed pop song in telling the tale of Dickinson. Elena, tell me about, first of all, did you, I, I'm from Southern Vermont. <laughs> And uh, so Amherst and, and Northampton and Hadley, they're like, uh, they're like uh, cousin towns to me. Uh, li- I literally grew up in a town right on the border of uh, Massachusetts called Vernon. Mm-hmm. And um, we're, first of all, tell me about your love for, for, for Emily Dickinson. I, like, I, I kept wondering, did you go to Smith? <laughs> did you go to Mount Holyoke? Well- well, I grew up. Um, I grew up in the Hudson Valley, which is, you know, pretty close to Western Massachusetts, and um, you know, definitely has the rural sort of haunted nineteenth-century vibe that a lot of New England has. So, um, uh, and I definitely spent time, you know, growing up in places like Amherst and, and Northampton. It was a familiar territory to me. Um, so that was probably part of why when I read Emily Dickinson's biography in my early twenties, um, I really connected with the person that I encountered there as, as being Emily Dickinson's kind of coming of age, younger self. Um, and especially with the landscape that she was growing up in, because, um, the funny thing is that. I mean, I'm in the Hudson Valley right now because I've been quarantined at my parents' house where I grew up. Um, So I'm looking out the window at a landscape that, you know, isn't particularly changed from the 1850s, at least at a first glance. And I think that connects to one of the things that I'm trying to do in this show where I'm trying to create kind of like... um, an uncanny sort of blur between the past and the present and point out things that might surprise us about our our present time because they really were just the same as in the 1850s, um, both for good and for bad. So, yeah. How long, how long had you, had you been working on this? You, you've worked with Aaron Sorkin on Newsroom and you just come off of the affair how long had you been working on this project? And did you, 
did you take it around to a number of bidders and then Apple and Apple TV jumped on it? Because what's remarkable, it's, it's one, it was one of, uh, one of their first shows. Mm. Yeah. I mean, all of that was just kind of, you know, random timing, but, um, I started working on this idea, um, in about 2013, uh, which was pretty soon after I had come out to LA, uh, from New York where I was mostly focused on playwriting and theater. Um, and I was trying to sort of find my voice all over again as a television writer, um, which was a process that, you know, went through various evolutions, which definitely included, um, you know, all that I learned working in other people's writers rooms. Um, and, you know, I just kept sticking with this idea. I felt like there was, I, I could see a, a half hour experimental um, dramedy about Emily Dickinson. <laughs> and um, I did tons of research and tried out sort of different tones and styles for the pilot. And um, along the way, I started working with um, uh, three producers um, from anonymous content. Two of them are now at Sugar 23, um, who were just fantastic producers who really believed in the project and um, helped me think about, you know, packaging it with actor or director. And then finally, um, I think it was like the fall of 2017. And I just said, okay, I think I'm ready to pitch this thing. And we actually ended up having only one meeting, which was with Apple, and um, they had just started buying shows. I mean, we were one of the first shows that they bought um, and one of the first Apple shows to go into production, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, it just, it just worked out really nicely um, in that way because I think that, you know, Apple being a new network at a place that is sort of all about creativity and, um, you know, uh, focusing on this particular creative genius that is Emily Dickinson, but bringing it in like a fresh way for today's audience. Um, it just, it all made sense as a project for everyone. And, and we kept working from there and, and really were part of building the, the network from the ground up, you know? Um, so it was, it was pretty awesome. The, um, it's such a fun show. And it, even even next to a lot of revisionist period stuff that's that's come out of late, such as Who's the Great, um, and um, even movies like The Favorite, it, it just stands apart, and it's just wonderful to watch. But she was a rather dark soul, uh, and she was rather um, you could you could say this more than than me, having having researched her more thoroughly. But um, she was an offbeat kind of outcast person and tell me about like as we go on in this story are things going to get darker for her because talk about that and also how she was able to see the beauty in life despite mm -hmm. being always having a gray cloud over herself well you know one of the reasons why I made this show a half hour um is because to me Emily Dickinson's life has the structure of a bleak comedy like like The Office or something like that because um the truth is that she wasn't a Sylvia Plath she wasn't a Virginia Woolf she did not walk into an ocean and drown herself she lived a long pretty mundane on the outside life. You know, she lived into her mid fifties, which was a good long life in the 19th century. Um, she wrote her poems, she gardened in her garden. She, you know, um, 
uh, on the outside, things didn't necessarily seem to change that much for Emily Dickinson. But on the inside, she was creating this body of work that really radically challenged everything about American poetry and literature. Um, so this contrast between, you know, all that was going on on the inside of her and all that was going on on the outside is one of the sort of central ironies of her life to me, along with, of course, the irony that she wrote nearly 2,000 poems and almost none of them were ever published while she lived. So I think the central question, the central mystery of Emily Dickinson's life is why didn't she ever publish? How did she keep going? How did she keep writing without really sharing her work in a traditional way? Um, and I think that as the seasons evolve, we're gonna get a lot of different answers to that question and kind of come at it from different perspectives. And the show will maintain, I think, the tone that it has, which is a, a really um, specific mixture of dark and light, because I think Emily is always able to see the humor in her situation, even as she is in her darkest places. Was, um, was it always a struggle with dad? Was it always dad raises her up and, 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 and it puts, puts her under his thumb? Was that, did you find that? Or was that, did that just become a good narrative for the show? The funny thing about Dickinson's biography is that there's a lot of holes in it um, for a variety of reasons. One being that all the letters that Emily herself received from other people were burned. So we kind of only have like one half of her correspondence. Um, and there were definitely hints that I found in her early biography that, um, that you know, her father was very strict that he didn't approve of women publishing, that he was a tough guy to deal with. I know there was one quote that she wrote in a letter much later after her father died um, that said, his heart was pure and terrible and I think no other like it existed. Wow. But she also had a flair for drama. So it's entirely possible that her dad was also just kind of a sweetheart. I mean, you know, we really don't know. And I think um, that, in season one, we are exploring Emily standing up to her father and claiming her right to be an artist. Um, but that doesn't necessarily remain the central conflict over the course of the whole show. Just as I think when we grow up in life um, and in our own families, I think our roles change and our relationships with our parents and our siblings and ourselves go through huge changes as we mature. So, you know, this is a show that if it goes on for many seasons, will span, you know, numerous years in Emily's life. And I think we'll see different sides to her family. Was, um, did she have correspondence with, um, with Thoreau and with, uh, Louisa May Alcott? That, that those were fun. That, that was really fun to, so that's more, that's more, as you will know, having grown up in Southern Vermont, you know, those are, those are just the sort of legendary literary denizens of New England. And it is hilarious to me that they all lived, you know, basically within a stone's throw of each other and whether or not they ever actually crossed paths or not. Um, they certainly had friends in common and knew and were, you know, were part of the same worlds. Um, you can track the interconnections between wow. all these people and more, you know, Melville, Whitman, you can go on. So um, I wanted to have some fun with bringing in Thoreau and Louisa May Alcott as like 
celebrity cameos that we get to meet. Um, and also specifically in Emily's journey as people that have quote unquote made it as writers, people who are being publicly recognized as writers and like Emily looking at them and wondering why she isn't having what they're having. Um, Lynn Shelton directed uh, episodes three and four, episode three, Wild Nights, very fun episode, the opium, the opium party, and um, alone I cannot be. What what was it about Lynn? T- tell us about getting Lynn on board and what made her awesome um, when it came to episodic directing. Was it the way she worked with actors? Was it the way that she, re you know, was able to give a refreshed look to something that you wrote? What tell me about working yeah. with uh, Lynn? I mean. Um... Lynn was, you know, such a dream of mine to have as, as a director for Dickinson. Um, she came to the project with her own uh, pretty strong interest in and enthusiasm for the work of Emily Dickinson. And I think also just as an absolutely radical, independent feminist artist in her own life and work. Um, And she just resonated so clearly with the spirit of this piece, which kind of, you know, um, can go back and forth between being very serious and very funny and um, is all about the truth of these intimate relationships in this family. And um, you know, Lynn had actually just worked with Toby Huss, who plays Edward Dickinson um, on her movie Sort of Trust. And um, and I, 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 you know, she she just came in and was immediately just part of the family, you know, and directed these two episodes that are so different from each other. On the one hand, we had this wild party that felt like we were at a party. We were on set, you know, for two days in a row making this thing and watching people dance. And, and you know, it was it was like it was the, such a wild, fun set. Um, and then being out on a lake, uh, you know, with Thoreau's cabin and um, the sort of serenity of Walden there. And I felt like it was Lynn's energy in both of those spaces, you know, like she, she just was so elated uh, to be, to be helping to bring the story of Emily Dickinson to life. And um, yeah, I mean, really unforgettable experience. Where did you shoot? Did you shoot uh, in, in the actual, like, like old Deerfield, Massachusetts, or were you in New York? We were in New York. We, we were, um, all of the interiors were built on a stage in, in Brooklyn, um, that we, you know, our production designer visited the Dickinson house, modeled everything on it. Although of course we took our liberties with the actual sort of color and vibrancy and decoration of the house, but, but from an outside perspective, it looks almost exactly the same. And, um, then we shot our exteriors at a place on Long Island called Bethpage, Old Bethpage Village, which is a preserved 19th century period village that, um, you know, unfortunately for our sound uh, designer has a lot of trucks backing up and planes flying overhead, which is the only thing disturbing the, uh, the image of the 19th century there. So, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's where we shot. David, here's something good. In fact, it's great. The HBO movie, Bad Education. 
Inspired by true events, the movie stars Hugh Jackman as Frank Tassone. He was this charismatic and esteemed superintendent of New York's Roslyn School District. And together with his number two, Pam Gluckin, who's played by Oscar and seven-time Emmy winner Allison Janney, they embezzle millions of dollars from the same school district they're looking to make the best in the country. Janey continues to wow in a memorable, gritty role here, and Jackman is just fierce. For your Emmy consideration, HBO's Bad Education. So with us today are your composers, Drum and Lace and Ian. And, um, you know, they give this also a very youth, youthful uh, take. And um, again, really, you know, take us into the modern era with it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, one of the things it reminded me of was kind of like what, what Kubrick used to do, like in Clockwork Orange. You had this kind of futuristic tale, but he's using classical music. Here it's the reversed period piece with something like digital and futuristic. Talk about how all of you arrived at this sound. Did, did um, Sophia and Ian, did you have that? Uh, did you know a, that you wanted that sound immediately? Or, or did, did, was Elena giving you certain direction of what you wanted? Um, so I think we we spoke with we spoke kind of about the music ahead of time, and I remember um, we got the call because there was a, a desire to have this be kind of like a very contrasting thing, which we were elated about because this really kind of was the dream scenario for us in terms of just like a beautifully like a beautiful show visually and really interesting story, but then with a completely different spin on the music from a normal period piece. Um, and I think, yeah, we had some conversations early on. Um, and I remember Elena giving us some notes. And I mean, Elena was very specific. I mean, I can let you speak to that about um, the music supervision and about the songs that she wanted in. So that was really helpful to know kind of like the vibe of that. And then the music supervisor, um, DeVoe Yates, was also very helpful. And I think it was a lot of experimentation at first. I think we did a lot of um, do you guys like this? Do you guys like that kind of like not to picture and just trying to figure out what worked? And ultimately, I think that it didn't, you know, everything always takes a little little bit, but I think we actually kind of like got into a really clicked into something um, pretty early on. And the advantage of this being a show rather than just a standalone movie is that I think that as the season evolved, the sound evolved with it. And we were able to really kind of lock things in and kind of then go back and revisit other things. Um, and we continued that into season two as well. And so um, t- tell us about your inspirations for the music. It's, we were looking at a lot of contemporary pop and rap music. Um, like when we first started doing our very first demos, we were actually using like um, some, I guess, not super contemporary, but like we would have a, a cue inspired by Missy Elliott or some stuff by The Prodigy because we were just trying to find like stuff that really captured this kind of uh impassioned energy that emily has you know i mean it's a lot of the show is lighthearted, but there's also a lot of dark stuff that happens and she's she can be super angry and virile at sometimes and we wanted to kind of capture that rambunctiousness yeah and i think that um one of some of the conversations we had early on is that it might be a period piece but the way that people feel 
felt back then and feel right now is very similar. So mm-hmm. it's like, there's no reason why, you know, that kind of vibe, like, or, you know, a, something that sounds like the prodigy or something that sounds like Missy Elliott or something that sounds like Phoenix wouldn't have been happening in her head, especially since she was such an artist and she was so ahead of her time. So, um, yeah, we started with that. And then, as I said, kind of, you know, we knew that there was going to be, um, all of these really amazing songs, these really great pop songs in it. So we just tried to make the soundtrack be something that could kind of smoothly go in and out of, um, the pieces and then also work visually and still kind of hold an emotional punch um, to be able to kind of give these characters depth, which, I mean, they already have so much because the, the scripts were so great. So, yeah, I, I feel like after the first season aired, people didn't actually realize there was original score for a little bit because our goal was to have what we do blend so well with the songs. So I guess we did a good job with that because people weren't actually sure that there was score in there. Yeah, I mean, we, we can see it on our stats that people were shazamming, like what songs people were shazamming the most thinking that it was an actual song and that was a huge compliment. Like the death theme, it's been shazammed like 2000 times because I think people think that it's like an actual song, but then they're like, Oh, it's just the score by these two people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, the, um, how was, and, how and, was the And work- also, sorry, yeah. I just want to shout out our incredible main titles song, which you guys also crushed, I think on the first try, which was yeah. amazing. Um, but you know, I feel like that just defines so much of it about like the spirit and energy of the show. <laughs> Uh, Sophia and Ian, what was the workflow like? I know for some composers on episodic television, you know, it, it could be this stress game of, you know, we're we're completing the score as we're as you're going to record it. But was there more breathing room here? The fact that it was a limited series, the fact, I mean, well, the fact that it was ten episodes versus say a twenty-three episode order. Um, was was there was there enough breathing room to kind of stretch and and, and feel your way around? Uh, you know, it's funny because we actually kind of came in a little later than I think we normally would have. But I think because we were so excited and like legitimately inspired by the story, it didn't ever feel too bad for us. Um, I think when we came in, they'd already shot like maybe half the season, and we saw some rough cuts of maybe like episode one and three. And we kind of, we came in right before the Christmas break and we kind of spent that whole holiday break in here uh, working on ideas. So when everyone came back in January, we were like, here's a, a platter of sounds for you to choose from. And then that, I think that really helped get us caught up with the rest of the team. But it's definitely a different vibe from um, working, you know, on episodic network television where you're working on the season as it's airing. Um, that kind of lights a little bit more of like a fire un- under you that you kind of just have to get it done. Whereas with this, I think it was really nice to be able to sit and kind of sit in the episodes and sit in the music and be able to have a little bit more leeway or a little bit more time. But I mean, we still had deadlines and I feel like those are always very helpful to any creative to kind of be able to hit marks. And in terms of workflow, I mean, it's, we're usually just in the room that, um, that we're sitting in right now, both of us with our hands on one big keyboard and you know one of us will get up and go to one of the analog synths or to a drum machine and just kind of 
try stuff out, but it's very much kind of like all of us, both of us for every cue. Um, at all. I think like the thing about making season one of Dickinson was that we were really every artist involved in the show was helping to create a new language because the show speaks in its own voice, you know, and there weren't like a lot of other examples to point to of this is how it is. And I think that what was so exciting about Ian and Sophie coming on was that, um, you know, we we kind of instinctively shared a language and we all got to contribute in a way that felt very, very organic and um, like without speed bumps to bringing about the, 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 the tone and the atmosphere that we wanted to have. Um, and yeah, it was, it, was, it was just really awesome. And of course that was, you know, pieces of a bigger puzzle that included, you know, the, the music supervisor and VFX and the costume designer and everybody who was in, involved, you know, um, and it was especially amazing since, since our Ian and Sophie the whole time were on the West coast and everybody else was on the East coast. So we had to sort of do the whole thing remotely. And, uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, we've, we've, I've just been waiting to come back to LA to meet their new baby and be in the same space. But <laughs> How did you meet Sophie and Ian? How did you get turned to their work? Because it's really great. I mean, was there was there always an emphasis to go in this great digital futuristic sound with the show? Yeah, I think that I knew that I wanted that vibe. I think because music in the show is like our direct route into Emily's brain. And it's sort of like Emily's consciousness is... Um, you know, from the future, and she's stuck in the past. Um, and uh, um, so somebody um, at Apple Music uh, introduced us, someone who was working on the show. And, um, and so that was just an awesome, you know, example of, I think, the, the sort of ideal of working for Apple, for whom, like, music is so important. And, um, you know, music in Dickinson is, is incredibly important. And, and we, we, you know, we were so lucky to, to find people whose sensibility matched so well. So uh, Ian, Ian and Sophie, you're, you're watching this. You're watching it without uh, music. Did what share with us what moment spoke to you where you were like we need to put something here what what were there what are what were some of your takeaways that you can't forget where you were watching the show and you said that particular scene this one this one this one speaks to me this i'm feeling we we need to put something here it's a good question uh I think there was a few in the pilot episode. Um, the death theme was a huge one uh, because we knew he was such an important character to her and we knew we really had to nail it. So getting that right, and it kind of it kind of almost works as like a, a comedy thing the first couple times you hear it. And then when you fully meet him, it becomes this kind of fully fleshed uh, piece. I think that was a, a big one for us where we were just like, how do we figure out the sound of this character? And then... Um, uh, the very end of the first episode too where emily the whole episode she's trying to finish this poem and she can only get like word by word or like half of a line here and at the very end of the episode she finally finishes a whole thought and goes nailed it and for us too that was kind of a big uh singing moment where it's like how do we bring that to life and then i think episode um episode seven and nine both had moments uh episode nine in particular because it's 
it's it's a really big kind of emotional without giving too much away it's it's a very you know i hate to say heavy but it's definitely le- a little less lighthearted than the other episodes and i think musically we were able to lean into things a little bit more um and there, there's a lot of diversity in that episode musically but then we were able to do for example like a death theme a different death theme and then there's like this vocal piece that at least for me was really emotional because it's just voice and it just really it just it, it, for me at least it's just like I really felt Emily's sorrow which I just remember when we first did it I was like oh my god I hope they like it because it's just it's it's really kind of weird but it really like it nearly felt like re- it's got a very like religious vibe to it I think that um, the, that Sophie's use of vocals has been so important to the show because, um, you know, Emily even referred to her own poems as songs, you know, and to herself as a singer. And I think that when we get to hear just that voice, just that female voice, um, that feel that's when I feel the most emotionally connected to Emily through the music. And I think, you know, what she's literally trying to do in, in this show is find her voice um, and, let, and let herself sing. So um, I think the vocals have been a really beautiful aspect of this. Sophie and Ian, um, tell us about your instrumentation for this. I mean, yes, synthesizers, but I'm hearing... Am I hearing electric violin in the um, in season in in episode ten? Uh, just some wonderful beats. It, it's just it's stepped. It's just really it's really um, it's organic yet um, yet very original. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it, it's honestly it's all over the place. There's a lot of synths. There are some acoustic instruments like some strings and stuff. But anything that's put in, unless it needs to be very literal, we usually heavily process it and run it through effects and pitch it down and reverse it. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of vocals as well. Um, uh, The first season especially had a lot of analog drum machines, um, which are, they're fun because they're very, um, they can be kind of unreliable and you don't always get the same result every time. And we kind of like, it added a, like a nice quality to what we're doing to make it feel more like we were making a record as opposed to scoring a TV show. And analog instruments, which we like to use, um, tend to have this warmth to them as well that you can really recreate kind of in the box. And yeah, and they'll always sound a little bit different. You'll never be able to get to the same patch again. And I think we were trying to use as much audio as possible um, just because then it's kind of easier to manipulate. And we were trying to stay away from using kind of the sounds that everyone was using, you know, so it's trying to stay away from the omnispheres and all the things, because the last thing you want is when you're trying to push the envelope is somebody be like, oh, I know what that, you know, I know what that preset is. So we were trying to kind of stay away from that. Um, and as Ian said, like everything, like the vocals in particular are very processed. Um, and yeah, I think overall, it's definitely very synth heavy. There's a lot of guitar. There is a lot of guitar. We've... Snuck, snuck in there. Yeah.
Elena, can you can you tease out uh, some some more season two for us? Are you writing it right now? Um, it, it once once it's safe to go back into production, are you guys hoping season, maybe fourth quarter this two, year? Season two is done. Season two is done. We shot mm-hmm. it. We made it. So uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, we just pretty much rammed straight through from season one into season two. As far as I mean, I didn't have a day off in between, um, and we were so lucky to be so ahead of schedule because it meant that we were done when coronavirus happened. So um, yeah, is is John Mulaney coming back? <laughs> uh, there's some. There are some special guests. There are some special guests, and um, yeah uh more more of our more of new england's literary uh pantheon <laughs> um the other thing i was going to ask so are you are you are you breaking story on season 3 right now or i'm always breaking story that's my life okay. <laughs> great 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 yeah well thank you all so much um it's been a it's it's been a pleasure. Thank you for for joining us on. Thanks Cruise. so much for having us. It was great talking to you. Yeah, thank you. And so much. we're gonna leave we're gonna leave you all with um, some music from Dickinson. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.